Lamentations chapter 3. I listen to a lot of podcasts, watch a lot of debates, watch a lot of interviews, um, that sort of thing. Um, and I'm really enjoying interviews where people disagree with one another respectfully and um, where moderators of those um, discussions kind of hold their beliefs close to their hand or close to their vest and where they have these discussions. Be one reason why I enjoy those so much is because I feel like they're so rare in our culture today because usually what is portrayed in most of the media is um, that everybody's angry, bent out of shape, throwing out one-liners, you know, but to sit and to, to listen and to watch people that disagree um, respectfully, honor one another's intelligence, um, speak to each other like human beings is something that I enjoy and it kind of helps me sift through some very important, important manners. One of the things I watch and listen to on a regular basis is moderated by a man called Justin Brierley. Um, he's out of the UK and there's a heavy growing influence in the United States where he has this thing called the Big Conversation. And you can find that on YouTube if you just go the Big, Conver big Conversation and all these different topics of what's going on um, philosophically, um, scientifically, theologically, culturally, and he just brings people um, primarily from the academic field in that have different things, and, and most of the time it involves a Christian and an atheist. That's, that's mo most of the time. Sometimes there's two Christians talking about an issue that is kind of divided in the church, and then other times um, it's an atheist and a, and a Christian, and they're having these conversations. So I really enjoy that because it, it reminds me that humans can have civil conversations. It reminds me that, that intelligent people can sit down with um, divisive ideas and talk about evidence and talk about different possibilities and those kind of things. So it reminds me of some of the good in humanity among people that disagree with one another, right? Well, I was watching one of these um, types of discussions, and then it, it, it kind of it, it started off okay, but it, it ventured off into the bizarre. And I'm not going to tell you um, any names, because as soon as I give you names, you're going to put people on sides and put them in groups, because that's what, that's what we do, right? So this particular discussion, we'll say the interviewer and the interviewee, okay? <laughs> so the interviewee was, they were, as they were discussing the topic, I'm not even going to tell you the topic, because the topic is irrelevant to my point. So as they were talking about the, the, the point, the, the, the issue at hand, um, the interviewer kept asking questions and using the word truth. He said, well, what do you believe is true about this? Or when we look at this piece of evidence, what do you think is true about that? And so he was asking him this question, but he kept using the word truth. And then the interviewee said, would you stop using that word? And he says, what? And he, he was, you could tell he was like really puzzled. And usually in these discussions, people show up well-armed for what they believe, right? And they're not shocked. They've read each other's books. They've read each other's um, um, articles. Maybe even their friends in the act. Maybe they teach at the same university, but they see things differently. And now they're in this discussion. So usually the people seated are never really thrown off. There's this really good kind of debates, and then they, they leave it at that. But this, the interviewee said, would you stop using that word? And the interviewer said, what, what word? And he goes, truth. And he goes, huh? And he sat there just looking at him like, I look with a puppy with his head sideways. And he goes, what do you mean? We're trying to get to the truth of the issue that we're talking about. Me and you sifting through our thoughts and the evidence that we have. And you and I are trying to get to the truth. 
And he goes, yeah, stop. If you use that word again, I'm going to get up and walk out. And he goes, I'm confused. I don't even know how to have a conversation with you. And he says, why, why can't I say that? Why? And he goes, because that, that disturbs me. And he said, because you, your truth and my truth are different. And he goes, well, I understand your perspective is different and your thoughts are different and mine are different, but what we're doing here is trying to get to the truth, right? And he goes, stop saying it. If you say that again, I'm going to leave. And it was really bizarre. And I kind of thought to myself, have we gone kind of that far, right? Where we, where we can't use that word anymore. Where we can't say truth anymore. Because I think you and I, as we make our decisions in life and, and live according to, I think we're living according to what we think is true, right? I mean, I, I think every single human being on the face of the planet is living based on what they perceive to be true. I don't think any human being is just saying to themselves, I'm going to make up my own truth. I know instinctively you believe that that's kind of unsettling, right? I, I know for me, I don't want to just go make stuff up. I, I want to know. <laughs> like, if my health is in danger, I want to know. I don't want to go to the doctor and him say, well, how do you think you're doing today? I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Please tell me what the test says. You drew all those vials of blood and I want to know, like, what's going on? Well, it's, they don't matter. It's just a matter of how you feel about it. Uh, but no, I, I, I want to know, right? And in areas of philosophy, in areas of science, I want to know what's true and what's real, and I want to base my decisions on that. I, I really wish I could figure out what's going on in Washington so I know how to vote, to, but I, I can't seem to figure out what's, because I don't think the truth is even part of the discussion. I think it's just ideas and narratives and those kinds of things. And then I think when we're looking at this notion, you and I are kind of left, I don't know. If you're like me and you want to know the truth, like what is really real, what is connected to reality, and I think that each one of you want to know that. And I think that no, no matter where we are, no matter how we're living, I think that that's part of our search, right? What, what is true and right? And we have a lot of those big questions going on in our, in our nation today. A lot of people asking why, a lot of people asking how, a lot of people asking what, and we kind of want to know what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to prepare for the future, right? A lot of people, you know, should I buy a house now or should I not? Well, depends on how you feel about it. No, 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 no it doesn't. Like, what's the market going to do? We don't, we don't know. Are we going to be able to buy a gas-powered vehicle after 2035? We don't know, right? We, we don't know a lot of things. Well, when these things are far off in, a, in kind of a distant way and we say them and they or what's going on in Washington or what's going on with this group or when, we, when it's distant from us, we can kind of stay almost in a more peaceful sense, right? But then when those issues that we're dealing with as, as Americans, as people that live in America, the issues that you and I are dealing with, as those start to creep closer into home, you, you and I start to get affected by that right? Either we're encouraged and we're excited, either we're relieved or we're, we're scared or we're frustrated or something's going on with us when we start to look and say, okay, what's going on with global oil prices? Well, that affects me when I go to put gas in the car, right? Um, if I'm going to buy an electric vehicle or not, well, that depends. Am I going to have an infra infrastructure that's capable of supporting all of us using that? Is that something that I'm going to be able to put in my home? Is that something we're going to do. When it comes to health care, am I going to be able to afford that? Is there? So we have to plan, 
And when we're planning, if there's uncertainty, you and I feel unsettled. And so as last week when I talked to you guys about um, struggling with doubt, there's this general kind of tiredness over our country right now. Like this general fatigue because we've been in, you know, this season of heightened disturbance and division and some of that has come into your workplaces and into your homes and it maybe has affected your, your, your health and all of those kinds of things. So some of this bigger kind of they and them out there, what they do in Washington, what they do, you know, at the state level, it's really starting to come home. And I think a lot of, a lot of us are tired. And so last week we talked about helping people deal with doubt that stems from being emotionally, physically, psychologically, and spiritually tired. We talked about, talked about that. Well, now something that, that happens when we get further into this idea of how is a church supposed to help each other during these times, one, another thing that this actually promotes within us is starts to stem from doubt. Doubt starts to creep up when we start getting emotionally tired, physically tired, things aren't going the way that we thought they should go or would go, and we're more and more confused. We see more and more negativity, negativity, negativity. And the more the negativity comes into us, the more we're faced with that negativity, the more doubt starts to creep into our mind. And then the more doubt starts to creep into our mind, we start to want to rush through the process and we start to hurry ourselves in our decision making. We start to come to hasty conclusions, hasty actions. Um, we make choices based upon being emotionally tired, physically tired. We can't deal with this anymore. Let's hurry up and get over with it. I know I should probably wait six months to make this decision, but I got to make it now because I'm tired of dealing with it. I know I have to maybe end this relationship right now. I'm tired of dealing with it. I got to find a new job now because I'm tired of dealing with it. You know, all of these kinds of things where we get so tired, we're so sometimes full of full of doubt, either in ourselves or in God or in others, that we just want to rip the band-aid and get over with it. We just, we just want it to stop. Whatever it takes to get it to stop, let's just hurry up and get there. And then as a church family, what we need to do is come along each other, alongside each other in these seasons where we want to just hurry up and get it over with, right? We want to hurry up and get past this. We, we, we want the 13-year-old to hurry up and become 25. It's like, come on, let's like move, move out of that. You know, um, if you're in physical pain and you have surgery and recovery time, Let's just get past this. This is like horrible. This stinks. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And so what happens is we start to move too fast through life and make hasty decisions and start acting out of this sense of panic. So in a church that, of people that love each other and the community of people helping us move forward in our spiritual lives and in our day-to-day -day lives, sometimes I need you to tell me to wait. Sometimes you need me to tell you to wait. Sometimes I need my spouse, my children to tell me to wait. Even if I'm walking ahead, one of my little grandsons, wait, Jeepa, wait. Sometimes when I'm sitting with a church board, I'm like, no, we need to make this decision now. We need to implement this thing now, pastor, wait. <laughs> my first church that I pastored in Moreno Valley, I had a man specifically, I think his role and his, his existence at the church was to slow me down. And he recognized that. He said, pastor, I don't want you to see me as contrary to the things that you want to do in our church. I just want you to see me as the person that's going to say, slow down a minute, have you considered all the possibilities? And I said, thank you <laughs> to that. And he was that person. And we function for, with, with each other in those kinds of things. And a church family is supposed to come alongside each other and sometimes say, hey, could you just wait before you do that? Wait for what? Just wait and consider. So I want to talk to you today about, and through um, this chapter in Lamentations chapter 3, about this entering a season of waiting, but 
trying to bring some more positivity to it, all right? So this is the one overwhelming issue, but before we get to that, I want to talk to you about being emotional healthy, emo- emotionally healthy. I got ahead of myself, as you could tell. Okay, in his book, The Emotional Healthy Leader, I just got done reading that book. It's a wonderful book by Peter Scazzaro. I think I said that right. Um, he suggests four-step process for decision-making. So this is kind of thing that this four-step process has helped me kind of pull the reins back on some things that, that maybe I want to do as a leader, maybe I want to do as, 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 a, as a man, kind of like hold me back for just a second. And, and, and these are the four, real quick. Um, define success as radically doing God's will, right? So in the church world and in my own personal experience, my, my relationship with God, I want to make sure what I'm doing is, is part of his will. I, I want it to be his perfect will, not necessarily his permissive will. I reflect on times in the scriptures when, when people wanted something and God didn't want that for them, but then they started, they kept begging and begging for it. So God says, well, here you go, and you can have that. And then when they got it, it was the worst day of their life, right? It's like for every boat owner, they say the best day of a boat, o- best two days of a boat owner is when you buy it and when you sell it. Because in between time, you're just fixing it. So it's just like kind of that kind of thing. And then number two, create a space for heart preparation. In large part, that's what this is, by the way. I'm assuming that each and every one of you are in some sort of decision-making process in your life. You've got choices to make. You've got things coming up this week that you need to decide on. Some of you men are deciding whether or not to go to the men's retreat next month. The answer is yes, that's God's will. You want to go, and I'm preparing your heart to get there. But we need some heart space for heart or create space for heart preparation that's part of this as part of your personal devotions and however you create space in your life we'll talk more about that in a little while and then pray for prudence right so pray that God helps you to see the big picture see all the facts all the information and then finally number four look for God in your in our limits so each and every one of us individually and as a church we have limitations but sometimes in those limitations is actually the blessing that's going to help you make a healthy decision, right? Because sometimes if you had the money to go buy what you wanted, you really shouldn't have that. You're going to go buy that, and it's going to end up being a mess. But because you don't have the money, you're safe. <laughs> and so sometimes God is in your limits. So with that in mind, I want, you, I want to talk to you about this one overwhelming thought, and it is this. Help each other, with, help each other wait quietly before the Lord by bringing truth to mind. That's what we need to do for one another. If I get out on the edge and I'm panicking or I I even talked to the church board this Friday that sometimes I feel like I'm tempted to lead out of fear and doubt. Now that's scary. Don't don't let that scare you. That's why pastors don't do whatever they want, by the way. That's why they have self-imposed limits. That's why our denomination has certain limits. That's why there's certain things. If I felt like I wanted to sell this property, and I just got so sick and tired of it that I'm going to sell this property and we're going to move to a new location, I could not do that all on my own. Okay, that takes board approval. That takes approval from a district properties board and a district superintendent, and we have bylaws and we have things, and I just can't show up on a Sunday morning and say we're selling the building next week. I'm sick of it. Tired of that gym. (laughs) Certain things I, I can and cannot do. And what I need in those times when I start leading, maybe out of fear and doubt, is I need people to pull me back and say, Pastor, have you considered this? Have you considered that? And that's what we do for for one another. I hope that's what parents do. I hope that's what older people do for younger people. People that have been married for decades, hopefully coming alongside people that are just married and say, hey, before you like panic here, have you considered? (laughs) Right, have you considered? 
And so we bring each other truth, help each other wait, and prepare our hearts and not live in this sense of panic, fear, and doubt. Let me give you a little bit of background information about this book that I've called you to turn to, this book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations, you could tell by the very name that it's a little bit depressing, right? The book of Lamentations. It's, it's a lament. It's, it's, it's a book written about how sad the author is. These are the things that he's lamenting. These are the things that are they're just bumming him out. And the book consists of five poems. Five poems about how bummed out he is. And why the author is so bummed out is because the nation of Israel in which he is a part has been destroyed by the Babylonians and hope of any sort of restoration and any future as a nation has gone by the wayside. And in fact, people of this day, if they had any resemblance of hope whatsoever, they were seen as absolute fools. They, they were seen as people that would come and say, what do, do you actually believe that things are going to get better? You're a moron. You're not looking at the world rightly. You're not seeing things. You're not looking at the evidence. Do you see the state of our country? Do you see that we've been destroyed by Babylon? Do you see that our temple is destroyed? Our city has been laid waste and our people have been carried off as captives. And you somehow in the midst of all of this information, you still think that there's, there's a reason to have hope. Well, the book was written, again, these five poems, and all five of them are negative. It's called Lamentations, but only one of them has one thing of hope. There is only one of these five, and that is number three, throughout the whole book that has any resemblance of hope whatsoever. And the hope that he has is based on one thing and one mindset. Because his whole nation of people that had lost all sense of hope and to where anybody that had any hope was seen as an absolute moron, closed off their brains, are, are now senseless, hopeless people themselves. They're just blind to reality. What happened was is they had forgot the promise that God had given them through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had told them before this even happened, when everything was still good and, and nation, the nation was still apparently healthy and put together, though they were very sinful, God had brought about the, the uh, prophet Jeremiah to tell them, though everything looks fine now, you will be entering a season of divine punishment for your sin, but upon the completion of that divine punishment of your sin, God will forgive you and restore you. And now when that punishment came, the punishment was more severe than they had anticipated and so, so severe that they even began to abandon their faith in God. How could a loving God punish us? How could a God that has a future and a hope for us do these kinds of things? How could it in all of those questions that we still even have today? And even the, the author of the book of Lamentations was getting sucked into this as well. And you could tell by the tone of this poem that he wrote, this Lamentations chapter 3, is what's called a Hebrew acrostic. How can I say that word? A Hebrew acrostic. So you take all the letters in the Hebrew alphabet and you give three what we call verses or three sections for each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so as that Hebrew alphabet, what we would say A, and then it would go on a B and C. So three verses for every, every one. And so that's kind of how this thing lays out. So when you read this section, you have to read it as, as poetry, but it's very tricky because it's not in Hebrew, and you don't read Hebrew, and I don't read Hebrew. You and I are dealing with this thing in English. So we're going to do our best to kind of glean from this Hebrew poem some helpful hints on how to help each other wait. First thing that we come to understand in this, um, yeah, sk skip that one. There we go. There we go. Perfect. Large-scale suffering can produce personal suffering that feels hopeless. Just think about that for a second. 
large-scale suffering. So big natural disasters, things that you and I are dealing with right now in our, in our country. I don't know if we're crossed over into an endemic from a pandemic. I don't, who, I don't know where we are. Okay, we have, a, we have a lot of things going on in our country today. A lot of things going on in your home today. But when there's large-scale suffering, it begins to affect us personally in our lives. And notice when he starts talking in verse 1. Following along in your Bible, we have to read, because this, the way this is written, it's poetry. We're going to have to read quite a bit at one time. And I, what I want you to do is not focus in so much on the, the specific words of this first section, but just hear the heart of the author, okay? He says, I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me in the bitterness and tribulation. And he has made me dwell in darkness like the dread of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is the bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He bent his bow and set me as the target of his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow's end of his quiver. I have become like a laughingstock of all my peoples and the object of taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness and he has, stayed, he has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness, or I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say. And then he says this. Remember my affliction and my weakness, wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So he just throws up all over God. <laughs> He's like, the national tragedies have become my personal pain, and this is how I feel about you today, God. This is how I feel. And one of the reasons why I love the Bible so much is because these are our heroes. This is honest. This is how a lot of us feel sometimes when it comes to God. We feel exactly like him. And what I feel good about is that I can find when I get like that and when I get sideways with God and you get sideways with God that we can get to a point where we can find ourselves in the scripture even in this. But then hopelessness can be changed to hope. Hopelessness can be changed to hope. That's the next slide, please. You begin though, even when he is feeling this way and free to express this to God, and it feels hopeless. I mean, this, what we just read, that, that's pretty bad, right? I mean, you, you, that's, that's, that's a pretty low place to be in life. But then hopelessness can be changed and can change to hope. Look at with me, please, verses 21 through 29. He says this, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. 
They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that, that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Stop right there. Now the way that this is written, I want you to pay specific attention to a couple of, of words. When, in verse 21, when he says, but this I call to mind, that word this in the Bible is, is written in the Hebrew sense of being emphatic. It's like this. It's like this is the thing. I feel this way, all this tired, all this complaint, all this weary, all this sadness, all this lack of hope. That's how he feels. And then he gets real determined. He says, but this one thing right here, but this one significant thing. You ever feel that way? Everything is good, but this one thing is bad, and it seems to kind of take over everything in your life. There's a hundred good things going on for you, but there's one thing that's really irking you, really kind of sucking the life out of you, a dark cloud over your life. That's the emphatic this. But in this case, it's the positive. He says, yes, I'm being punished by the Lord. Yes, my nation is being punished by the Lord. Yes, no one has hope. And if you do have any hope at all, you're seen as a blind fool. And he says, but this, this one thing. He says, this one thing. And he, we're led to believe and you compare verse 21 with verse 20. Because he says this in verse 20. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this. <laughs> but this. I'm going to call to mind. You see the personal suffering that comes home to us needs to be compared with something. You and I have to find some sort of anchor that's going to set us in place that we can make a solid, well thought through, well considered, truth-based decision. Because if you make decisions based upon your feelings described in verses 1 through 20, if you just say my soul is bowed down and now I'm going to choose or I'm going to do or I'm going to make a move or I'm going to go over here, it's time for the church to tell us at that point, if I start leading out of fear and doubt, if I start doing things out of discouragement, and I say, well, then fine, I'm so upset, I'm going to, and then you, no, oh, verse 20 is no place to make a decision. We can only make decisions after we've moved through verses 20 through 29. And for that, you and I need help. I know I do. I know I need help of people to say, Pastor, hold up, time out. I need my wife, Paul, just calm down a second. <laughs> we all need each other to do that. And if we would just push pause for a moment and emphasize this one thing, he says, when I call this to mind, notice what he's doing. He's making a, a specific switch. He says, my soul is cast down, so I need to call something to mind 
my heart is disheveled with emotion. I'm sad, I'm broken, I'm in distress. So I need to think more clearly about where I am. My emotions tell me God hates me. My eyes tell me God's no longer present. And if I act on that, I will destroy my life. And so I need an anchor and I need to call to mind. I need to start thinking a bit more clearly about my situation. I need to slow down. I need to get quiet. And I need to think this through. And that's what he says, this I call to mind. When my soul is disturbed, my heart, my passions, I'm all worked up. Slow down. Use the 487. Did I say it right? Carol, what is that breathing? 478. Well, just go in the numerical order, Hobbs. <laughs> 478. If you want to know more about that, see, see Carol. I just got to calm down. Take a breath. And in that, I start to see that living in hope when hope seems senseless. Because you and I need some reasons, right? When everything that we feel and everything that we see, it appears that we should just abandon hope. But then we get emphatic about this. So we say, I need to call something to mind here. I need to remember something. And this is what he starts to remember. He emphatically brought to mind the basic truth of God's love and mercy. He calls a big time out in his heart. And he thinks through what we read in verses 20 22 and 23. Looking at your Bible, he says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That is a basic truth. Now I know, as, a, as people that read Bible verses isolated from their text, which is a bad, bad habit, sometimes people will read that verse all by itself on a coffee mug, a t-shirt, or some kind of cute little poster, and they will read that, and they will say, the steadfast of the Lord never ceases, his mercy never come to an end, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness, yay, that has morning in it, so it's probably going to go on some sort of Christian coffee mug, you know, because it's in the morning, and you're like, yay, I'm drinking coffee, great is your faithfulness, new mercies today, coffee, yay, good little Christian. But we realize that this verse is a turning point when he's having a horrific time and his life absolutely sucks, if I could say that in church. There is no reason for hope, but I got my coffee cup, says it right there. New every morning. And if you're in my home, it's fresh ground coffee, new every morning. Thank you very much. <laughs> he calls this to mind and he says Phew, this is a disaster okay what is a basic truth here oh the basic truth what have we seen throughout history I've seen that now if he brought to mind anything about what he's been told he could have said now hold up here hold up my situation is bad this is ugly this is terrible um hey you know what jeremiah did tell me that this was going to happen but what else did he say he said this bad stuff was going to happen and boy it's bad but he also said it's going to get better. Oh. And in times past, it has got better. There's been things that have gotten really, really bad, and then they got really, really good. 
because why would it be significant that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning? Because there is what is called the dark night of the soul. The only reason why we need new mercies in the morning is because sometimes the night really sucks. And the darkness is really deep. And we can't see our way through. And we can't see any possibility. And the Lord says, I see that and I understand that. But my mercies are new every morning and I will carry you out of this time of darkness. But don't make any decisions when you're sitting in darkness. Don't make any choices when you can't see any way forward. And so he emphatically brought to mind this basic truth of God's love and mercy, even though he was in this very dire situation. He also emphatically brought to mind this idea of waiting as, it mean, as, as the means by which to express the goodness, gain goodness from God. I need to wait. Now it's interesting when we start talking about waiting. You can wait for or you can wait on, right? And this is more waiting on. Waiting for, you can sit and do nothing. I don't know. I'm just going to sit here. Uh, or I can wait on. I can wait on the Lord. I can serve Him. I can continue to do things. Like when you're at a restaurant, you're not being waited for, unless you're late, and that's really annoying. But you are being waited on. May I take your order? Would you like more of that, please? So in that middle of that distress, waiting on the Lord in silence. So he says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. I, I know this is a disaster. I know it's a mess. But my hope is in God, not in the ability of people to figure it out. My hope is not on who's in Washington and if they get the Constitution right and if who's on the Supreme Court and who's in Sacrament. Don't hope in those folks. Whatever they decide, however that affects me, my hope is in God. Not that it's going to go my way, because it's not, but that he'll help me deal with however it is. So he says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul of those who seek him. That seeking part. He also brought, in the, the next slide, the next set of verses, he emphatically brought to mind, waiting has to be done quietly. When he says in verse 26, it is good that one should wait quietly for the Lord, for the salvation of the Lord. For it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth into the dust and there may be yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Just be quiet. Just be quiet. So I think we talk too much. I talk too much. You're probably saying, yeah, man, you're talking way too much. But just be quiet. You already got it out, verses 1 through 20. Threw it all out there. And then it says, I need to get quiet with God. I do that by sitting quietly in my office at times. I do that by going off into the, into the mountains and being quiet. But I notice for me, quietness is a challenge because my brain goes places, right? 
start thinking all the negative. I trend negative sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes to avoid that, I got to cram more positive stuff <laughs> in my brain. But then what I'm realizing that recently over the last month or two, I've had a real problem being quiet before God because I'm internally noisy. And I'm working on that. And I, I have a lot more work to do <laughs> on that, but getting quiet with the Lord. And then he also emphasized, he emphatically brought to mind that his steadfast love that God causes both grief and compassion. And in these verses, we find a, a, something that is very difficult for us to read in the Bible and something that we, we struggle to and, and wrestle with. He says, for the Lord will not cast off forever. Okay, that's good. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to his abundant, the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, and to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. So you're going to have to, if you're going to spend any time with, with this verse, with this chapter in the next few days, I would say kind of settle there for a little bit. And if you come to a place to where you understand that God does cause, this, this is, God does cause things that we view as negative, boy, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. Because as in the seminar on loss yesterday, which Carol led, there's some things that have happened in your life that some of that's happened that God didn't cause. And then there's some things that you and I in our rebellion and then God disciplines us and does cause. And man, that's a hard minefield to walk through. Knowing what God somehow allowed and then why he would even allow some of that. That's a rough one. That's a rough place to sit and say, why would you allow that? Because I've come to the conclusion that there's only two things, two types of things that happen in the world. Those things that God allows or causes. And him and I have a lot of conversations about both. And we are not on the same page about a lot of that. But what do I do with that? Abandon God? Well, that doesn't help. My problem is still there. If I don't like the situation that I'm in, I blame God for it, and I, st and I stop believing in God, and I ditch the Bible, what do I have? My problem. I still have my problem. But if I call to mind the things that I know and I read my Bible and I go look at the Bible tells me that God causes these things. Oof. Okay, well, what, what is the answer then? Well, the answer is to wait quietly on him and he will redeem that and make that somehow, somehow in some miraculous way, it makes me better. Some of you are way better people. Your faith, your generosity, your love, your concern is way better because you went through hell and God brought you through it. And now you're a miracle. And now you're amazing and full of compassion and care and empathy and wisdom and all that somehow because God either allowed the cause and sometimes I don't know which it is. But all I know is you're amazing now. And to God be the glory for that. But if you want to live in bitterness and anger, then you cast off God and all you have left is your problem. All you have left is your tragedy and you're sitting alone with it. 